Good morning. <coughs> Good morning, everyone. And um, I take the, the opportunity to wish you all the compliments of the season. I was involved this elsewhere last Sunday morning, but got a good report of the service um, from Nancy when she came home. A call to worship. Sing praise to the Lord, all his faithful people. Remember what the Holy One has done, and give him thanks. Now we continue to worship as we come to God in our prayer of approach. Let's pray together. Almighty and most wonderful God, unsearchable and inexhaustible, greater than we can ever imagine, higher than our highest thoughts, enthroned in glory and splendor, we come to give you our worship, to offer our praise, to make our confession, recognizing that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, have mercy upon us. Forgive our misplaced pride and arrogance. We have been so full of our own importance, preferring our ways to yours, imagining that we know all there is to know about you, trusting in our own wisdom instead of seeking your guidance, setting ourselves up in the place that is rightfully yours. But your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, have mercy upon us. Forgive our narrow vision and closed minds. We've tied you down to our own understanding, closing our hearts to anything which challenges our restricted horizons, losing sight of your greatness, failing to listen to your voice or, or the voice of others, refusing to accept that others beside ourselves have insights to share. Lord, have mercy upon us. Almighty and most wonderful God, remind us that you always have more to say and more to reveal. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to who and what you are. Remind us that your ways are not our ways and that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, have mercy upon us. And so fill us with awe and wonder, joy and thanksgiving, praise and worship, now and forevermore. And hear us as we continue to say together the words the Master left with us to use. As we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The reading this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, and on to chapter 5, verse 5. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus 
and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not built with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I want to make reference just to one word which is wrong on the uh, sermon title today. It's actually meant to be spiritual homesickness rather than homelessness. And having cleared that up, I want to begin by telling you a story. Um, For some years, our family moved to Plymouth. I had a church in Plymouth for about nine years. And in Plymouth, we met a most amazing character. He was a retired gentleman. He'd had a twin, and his twin and he did everything together. And then one Christmas Eve, his brother, Russell, died suddenly in a Christian hotel in Torquay. Horace was a good member of the church. In fact, he was there every time the door opened. And was even known sometimes to go along to the women's fellowship on a Tuesday afternoon. He came regularly to the midweek service and prayer meeting. And soon he was coming into the manse and having tea with us regularly on Wednesdays. Our three growing boys adored this man. Again and again they would say to him, Horace, please tell us again about the pigeons. Now this is a story about I'm telling the story because it links to the idea of uh, spiritual homesickness. Horace's father kept homing pigeons. Now, he was about mid-70s when he came to us in the mid-70s, and he could look back onto a life in a tenement when things were hard and money was short. And with twin boys in the house, pocket money didn't come their way very often. And then one day, one of these boys had a brainwave. They said, he said to his brother, look, dad's got these homing pigeons. And he only ever takes them out when there's races on. Do you know, if we took a couple of pigeons down to the Paisley, to the Plymouth market, we could sell the pigeons And they'd be home by the time Dad came in from work. And this is what they did. And it was beneficial, as he would say. And uh, the story 
Whenever the boys get together, they say, remember Horace and his pigeons, you know? Right. Cats and dogs often find their way back across stretches of unknown country. Pigeons fly direct to their homes hundreds of miles away. Seabirds carried around the coast from one side of the country to the other return unerringly, apparently straight over land, to the very cliff or burrow from which they went. Swallows and other migrant birds take a confident aerial journey between destinations thousands of miles apart. Salmon return to spawn in the rivers of their birth. Young eels can steer their way through a wild, heaving ocean to hereditary waters which they'd never seen. Nothing in all nature to me is more wonderful than this amazing instinct of lower creation for its home. The question has often been asked whether or not the human race ever possessed the same homing instinct and gradually lost it through the ages because of its preoccupation with other things. The question is usually waved aside, either with a direct negative or by the assertion that the evidence is too slight for us for an answer to be given. I'm raising this question this morning. There is a deeper answer to it than most inquirers have guessed. And I'm going to give you the spiritual answer. Deep in the heart of every human being, there is a homing instinct. Profound, persistent, ineradicable which we often ignore and might even try to deny but which if we turned our attention to it might make us, in reali- make us realize the inwardness of a line taken from the hymn book which in other words some folks might smile at I am a stranger here within a foreign land. My home is far away upon a distant strand. And I want to base my argument this morning upon two undeniable facts of human nature. And if you resist the inference at the end, you'll still have to explain these facts some other way. I want to lay it down as quite incontroversible that there is something in humanity which earth can never satisfy. It's common for people to say and to believe that if they only had this or that or some other coveted thing, they could always be happy. And some of them die believing that. But the evidence of those who obtain the treasure on which they set their hearts doesn't bear it out. It satisfied them for a little while. Then the old persistent hunger was there again, clamorous as ever. No one can deny that to lack enough money to meet the simple needs of life is to miss some happiness. 
But it's a widespread error to suppose that the possession of a lot of money equals lots of joy. Jay Gould, an American millionaire who died possessing $50 million, summed up his life, not in a mood of despondency, but as his considered verdict on himself in, this, in these words, I suppose I'm the most miserable devil on earth. Some people set their mind on a coveted position and believe that complete satisfaction for them would come by achieving it. They would work and scheme and plan to obtain the high post, but the satisfaction of achievement soon fades. When Benjamin Disraeli, twice Prime Minister of Great Britain, reviewed his life, he said, Youth is a mistake, manhood is a struggle, and old age a regret. He may have been posing again, but men who could never be accused of being posers have, acted, have echoed his word. Fame is a will-o'-the-wisp thing which beckons others on. Milton, you remember, called fame that last infirmity of noble minds. And Sir Walter Scott achieved it, great and worthy and deserved fame. But there was that in him which not all the praise of men could satisfy. And when he lay dying at Abbotsford down in the borders, he said to his son-in-law Lockhart, bring me the book. And Lockhart said, the book? Which book? And Scott said, there's only one book. Bring me the Bible. Pleasure is the goal of other people. Its pursuit becomes a science to them. The art of life as they conceive it is to squeeze as much juice of pleasure from every moment that it can yield. But so often it turns to gall and bitterness at the last. Byron Lord Byron may be taken as typical of the grosser hedonists. He drifted in the quest of pleasure from one woman to another and he died an old man at 36, saying of himself on his last birthday, My days are as the yellow seer, the flowers and fruits of love are gone, the worm, the canker and the grief are mine alone. Some people pursue physical health, and as you know, cults have grown up which make the fitness of the human body the end of all striving. But there are spiritual maladies which, have, which no harmony of the body can cure, and which, if uncured, will rob the body of its health as well. Now this is my first point. There is something in man that the world can never satisfy not even the best things of earth. The testimony of those who've achieved the coveted things of this world is emphatic and uniform. There still remains a longing, a hunger, a heartache, which nothing material or terrestrial seems able to meet. We live on earth, and yet somehow we're left with the feeling that we don't really belong here. In certain ways, we have a kinship with the beasts, but as far as we can judge, earth satisfies them. Well, most clearly, earth does not satisfy us. 
I cannot help feel that this is an impressive fact. I warn you against supposing that if you only had more of this or that, that you would be completely satisfied. That, dear friend, is an illusion. Earth cannot satisfy you. Listen to William Watson in his poem, World Strangeness, when he asks, In this house of starry dome, floored with gem-like plains and seas, shall I ever feel at home? Never wholly be at ease. And the only answer you can give the poet is this, never. You weren't meant to feel at home here. Now here's a second fact. I believe that there is in man a nostalgia for heaven. Forgive me for reminding you that the word nostalgia comes from two Greek words, nostos, which means return home, and algos, which means pain. It meant originally that homesickness was an incurable malady, incurable by anything except, of course, by being back at home. And I believe, although it's hidden, ignored, and overlaid, and even denied, there is in many hearts, Christian and non-Christian, a homesickness for heaven. Wordsworth, in his famous ode on the imitations of immortality from the recollections of an early childhood, speaks in plainness of his secret of the secret reminiscence of his soul. Our birth is both a sleeping and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness, and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. From God, who is our home. All that Wordsworth had in mind when he said it, it, that it is that beyond the range of our, it's beyond the range of our present interest. I do believe in many hearts there is a homesickness for heaven and that we have to wait until we're taken there, until the ache which has plagued us through our journey can be satisfied for God. We all feel it, but only some understand it that in a deeper sense than Cleopatra meant when she truly said, I have immortal longings in me. There's an old legend which comes across from the Western Isles concerning a sea king who wanted to have the company of a human being. One day he heard in his cavern under the seas a cry, a little human cry. So he rose to the surface of the water to discover a child in a derelict boat. And just as he was about to make for that vessel and seize the child, a rescue party intervened and he missed his prize. But, so the legend says, as the captors drew away with the ones who nearly lost, the sea king cupped his hand into the sea and threw it into the heart of the child, a little sea salt wave. And then he submerged, 
And he said to himself, this child is mine. When it grows, the salt sea will call him and he will come back to me at the last. It's a part of the service of our religion to make the hunger of the soul clear to people. And that is why nostalgia is known in its true meaning only among the devout Christian community. Our fathers sang, strangers and pilgrims here below, this earth we know is not our place, but hasten through the veil of woe and restless to behold thy face, swift to our heavenly country move, our everlasting home above. And as the hymn swelled and the certainty of self-understanding gripped the congregation, they went on to sing this glorious verse. Through thee who all our sins has borne freely and graciously forgiven, with songs to Zion we return, contending for our nation's heaven, the palace of our glorious King. We find it nearer when we sing. And will you notice this? If you have any spiritual discernment, whenever you meet a saint, you notice two things about him. The first thing is how natural and how at home he seems to be in every situation. And then you say to yourself when you've been in his company for a few moments, this man is an exile. He doesn't belong here at all. You notice it. In St. Paul, how busy he always was for the kingdom, in the affairs of the world. And then he sighs in my text to be at home with the Lord. There's a famous Scottish theologian called Thomas Erskine of Linlathen. I'm told that after his death, his life recurred in the memory of his old acquaintance, like the sigh of an exile. He seemed never to have taken root in this world. To him, many of the things that most interested other men were only the furniture of an inn. Not really important because he wasn't staying. He was a wayfarer, a pilgrim. That's one of the authentic marks of the saint. He's the pilgrim of an inward odyssey. The earth he knows is not his place. Ask yourself this morning, do I not, do I know that? And I want to say to anybody who's not a Christian who's here this morning, you may have lost your way. Please don't lose the address. Don't deny the hunger of your soul. Don't say it isn't there that earth satisfies you and that when life is over, you will have had all it has to offer. And I notice that what Logan Pearsall Smith says in his biography, his autobiography, for any other form of being, I feel no longing. He'd lost the religion of his saintly mother. He had no robust religion of his own. Then he denies the hunger for anything more. He'd not only lost his way, He'd lost his address. May God keep our souls against that. The homesickness for heaven in your soul is a generous divine gift. 
It won't make you less keen to serve others here below, but it will be a permanent reminder to you that the most permanent dwelling earth affords is a tent, and at any time the work may come to you to throw the pegs. We are indeed strangers and pilgrims here below. Your interest in heaven, of course, may expose you to the charge, even from fellow Christians, of otherworldliness. People who've made the social gospel, the whole gospel, are very free with that charge and deserve only to be ignored. You have been well taught that the interpretation of the Christian ethic in communal, communal life is a part of your Christian business and witness. But you know and I know that only in New Jerusalem we shall see not made with hands, but it's eternal in the heavens. Far over yon horizon rise the city towers, where our God abideth, that far home of ours. Here we sojourn, there we, be, there we belong. You will work with zest and skill and thoroughness in all that concerns the outworking of God's purpose on this earth, and you will work all the better because, by faith, you have the perfect in view. Only these people who work with full effectiveness for the new Jerusalem see the new Jerusalem above. They make it after the pattern which was shown in the mount. Think of the glorious social consequences of the evangelistic work of John Wesley, Lord Shaftesbury and William Booth. They were all of them God-intoxicated men. All of them consciously marching to Zion all of them very sure of heaven. Be sure of it yourself. I believe that's where Christian people belong. Send hope before to grasp it, till hope be lost in sight. A minister gave an example of his very good pastoral work. He was a London man, the poor drunkard came into his church and committed his life to Christ. Twenty years ago, this poor man had been a church official in the Midlands. His firm moved him to London. He took the drink, drifted into the gutter. And when he came to Christ, his pathetic hope was that his thirst might be quenched by some stroke of omnipotence. And it wasn't. So there began on that day when he surrendered to the Lord a long guerrilla warfare in his soul between the deadly craving and the keeping power of Christ. His new friendly pastor suggested that on any day when the poor man found the fight especially hard, he should drop into the church and they would find time to have a prayer together. The poor man dropped in quite regularly. His drawn face often told its own story. But the minister and the would-be sober man went into a quiet room and prayed. One day the pastor and his friend were praying and the man broke down completely. The contrast of his life with his earlier holy service and the revolting bestiality to which his drunkenness has brought him was too much. He sobbed like a child. 
He said, I know I'm in the gutter. I know it. But oh, I don't belong there, do I? Tell me I don't belong there. The minister put his arm round him. He felt a great elation, even in the embarrassment of his tears. He whispered to him, you don't belong here. You belong to God. And in the last, heaven is your home. Amen. May God bless his word. Now this morning we're going to have our intercessory prayers. Let's pray together and let me remind, or let me just say that there is a response. Several times during the course of this prayer I'm going to give this cue, Lord in your mercy. And it would be grand if everybody felt they could say at that point, hear our prayer. Let's pray together. Lord of the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the vulnerable and the oppressed, we pray for those who feel they have no roots, no identity, no sense of longing. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who lie as refugees in strange lands, driven from their own homes and country by civil war, oppression, famine, and natural disaster. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who've been orphaned as children, those who've been adopted and long to know their real parents. We think, too, of those who come from broken homes and are scarred by the trauma of separation. And we remember tenderly those who have been abused, those who feel unloved and unwanted. Lord, in your mercy... We pray too for those who are lonely, deprived through age or infirmity of human companionship, or separated from others even when they're with them through fear, shyness, mistrust, or prejudice. Lord, in your mercy, we pray for our society, which in which has so much of the feeling of community has been lost, for a sense of local and national identity has long gone, where ties which once bound families to each other have been broken, where values, customs and convictions which gave stability have been flouted by those who think only for themselves. Lord, in your mercy. God of our world, give to us all a proper sense of the worth of those around us. A recognition of the humanity that binds us all together, transcending all human differences. And give us a sense of your love for all. The purpose that you have for each person, no matter their race or culture, background or circumstance. Lord, in your mercy, for we bring these prayers together and unitedly in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain standing. I'm going to say a benediction in a moment or two. But in speaking to the secretary this morning, I felt it would be appropriate that as a congregation... We paid for Katrina at this particular time.
It's not to be a long prayer, but I know it will be sincere and offered from sincere hearts for her future well-being. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning very conscious that in this encouraging congregation, one who is already loved and admired by us all is missing. You know how sad we are to hear of all Katrina's health problems. We thank you for the courage and the calmness with which she has faced the trial which comes to her. We would have her understand that we are concerned ourselves to pray individually and as a congregation for her well-being. So we pray, be near her in these testing days. May she be assured of our prayers and our concern for her. And may she know your presence with her at times when the experience is at its most demanding. You know that the prayer of every heart is that we look forward to having our own minister back among us and conducting worship in her own inimitable way. Hear our prayers for Katrina, for we bring her in Jesus' name. And we ask now that grace and mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit might rest and remain amongst us all this day and even evermore. Amen.